Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now as the Lord of rest, that you would open this text to us by the power of your Spirit and give us light to see what you would have us learn. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you reflect on the text that we've just read, I have one piece of advice for you, which is never go toe-to-toe with Jesus. Just don't do it. The Pharisees are picking a fight here. They want some conflict with Jesus, and you can understand. He's already taught that when someone slaps you, you should turn the other cheek. So they're assuming he's a soft target. This is the kind of guy you'd want to mix things up with. But they discover that they're not right. Because for Jesus to turn the other cheek, first you'd have to land a punch. And when it comes to arguing, nobody ever does land a punch on Jesus. It's a remarkable passage, but not because Jesus whips the Pharisees, not because Jesus wins the argument. Of course he does. What's remarkable is how he does it. How he does it is actually kind of amazing. They attack Jesus on a point of law. They attack him on on a, we might think of as a detail of Sabbath observance. But he answers them not with law, but with what we might call redemptive history. He raises the stakes. They attack him with their interpretation of the book of Leviticus. And he responds with the logic of the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus, basically, when the punch is thrown, doesn't duck, he doesn't block, he does something more amazing than that. He sort of enlarges himself. He does what Gandalf does in that scene at the beginning of uh, The Lord of the Rings when Bilbo accuses him of wanting to steal the ring. As Gandalf rebukes Bilbo, what happens to Gandalf? He grows larger. He takes up more space. He seems to be a, a much bigger entity than he was At the beginning, Jesus does that here. He reveals that he's much larger than his attackers realize. But he does something else as well. He not only gets larger, but he also takes the ground out from underneath their feet. He undermines them. He takes away the place where they are standing. He makes himself large by revealing who he is. He makes himself large by revealing that he is a greater king than King David. 
that he is a greater high priest than Aaron ever was. Indeed, that he's a greater temple than Solomon's temple or Herod's temple could ever be. And he takes away their foundation by showing that where they're standing, the law that they think their arguments rest upon, they don't understand it at all. They don't realize the true meaning of the Scriptures that they are attempting to use against Jesus. Have you even read, Jesus says? Well, of course they've read it, but the point is they haven't understood it. They have read it, but they haven't seen the meaning of it. They've only twisted it to their own ends. Because they're hypocrites. These hypocrites accuse Jesus of being an enemy of rest. Of permitting labor on the day of rest. That's the accusation. But Jesus reveals Himself to be not an enemy of rest, but actually the Lord of rest. The only One in whom we can find rest. He does it in a way that might help you sniff out some of your own hypocrisy. It might help you understand how following Jesus is the only way to find real rest. Consider the irony of the accusation. They come to Jesus and they say, you're violating the Sabbath day. You're breaking the law. You are an enemy of the rest that God gave to His people as a gift. This accusation and Jesus' answer to it teaches us a lot. So, here's the infraction. Jesus and His disciples are walking along on the Sabbath day. They're hungry. And so they start pulling grain and eating the grain. This is permitted by the law. You're allowed to glean off of the edges of someone's field. So that's not the crime here. The crime is when they're doing it. They're doing it on the Sabbath day. So just something as minor as reaching out and breaking off those heads of grain and eating them, the Pharisees are saying that's work. And that is what is forbidden. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. That is their crime. This overscrupulous interpretation of Scripture reveals something about the Pharisees that's kind of interesting given what Jesus has just told us at the end of chapter 11 about his way of doing things. Like Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly. Like my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And now Matthew introduces us to people whose yoke is anything but easy and whose burden is anything but light. The, the Pharisees, in a sense, embody the opposite of what Jesus claims to be. The way that they interpret the law, the way that they apply the gifts of God, doesn't just transform those things, it distorts them into something quite difficult. And that approach signals their own hypocrisy. Calvin points this out as he comments on this passage. He says, this is what hypocrites always do. If you're looking for the red flag, if, you, if you're saying, like, how can I spot a hypocrite? It's that he's somebody who is obsessed over trivial observances, over getting minor but visible things right, but is not worried about getting the invisible things right. So, He's not concerned about what really matters, but he's very concerned about what appears to matter, about what looks good. That's how you spot hypocrites. 
Jesus points out the hypocrisy because what they're doing with the Sabbath, this is revealed in Mark's Gospel, not here in our text, they're actually taking something that was made for man. Sabbath was, was a gift. It was made for human beings and they're using it to crush men. They're taking something that was a gift and they're turning it into a burden. Their accusation against Jesus actually reveals a guilt of their own in the way that they have twisted the words of God. Just pause for a moment and consider what the logic of rest really is. What does it mean to say that God has given us a gift of rest? Or that God has called us to a day of rest? And that is what it is. It is a gift. Oftentimes, we experience it as a kind of obligation. And when people talk about the Sabbath or they talk about the Lord's Day, it's always in terms of negation. Like, what am I allowed to do? What can I get away with? What do I have to do on this day? As if what had been imposed was some sort of burden. When in fact, God gave the Sabbath as gift. When God gives you a gift, there's one thing you can be certain of. It's that you need it. He doesn't give you things that you don't need. If God set aside a day of rest from our labors, it was because we as human beings need that rest. Now, of course, we live in an age when this kind of Phariseeism surrounding the Sabbath is is almost entirely vanished. There are no more blue laws. There are no more regulations, what businesses can operate on Sundays, that sort of thing. There's, There's no standard of hypocritical observance that we need to chafe against in our society. It's all the other direction. If anything, it's weird to think that there could be a day where where no work was expected of us, where no one could expect us to be on the clock or online under obligation. Ironically, we all people, I think, living when we do, can appreciate how rest can be a gift because so many periods of rest have been taken from us. We have so little time that we can point to and say, this time is sacred. This cannot be transgressed against or taken away. Imagine what a gift it would be to live in a society, in a community, where there was a time always set aside for rest. That rest is a gift from God. He gives it to us because we need it. But like so many gifts of God, we reject this gift. One way to reject the gift of rest, of course, would be to work instead. That's the classic. That's what they're accusing the disciples of. They were told to rest and instead they're working. But another way to reject the gift is to turn what's meant as a gift into a burden. To make it so onerous to make observing all of the parameters so intense that the last thing you could do on that day of rest is rest because you're filled with anxiety that you're doing it incorrectly. The Pharisees accused Jesus of letting His followers work when they're meant to rest, when in fact, they're the ones guilty of the infraction because they're taking the gift and turning it into a burden. God might say to those Pharisees, you've turned my gift into a curse. If he did, though, they might reply, well, yeah, but at least we haven't rejected it. Like, maybe we have. Maybe we've twisted it. Maybe we've made it hard, but at least we're not breaking the Sabbath like those guys. 
But honestly, that's no defense for twisting God's Word. The only answer when you find yourself convicted of hypocrisy is to repent of that twisting, to repent and to reject it, to turn from it, enter rest, and let other people rest as well. Jesus, when He answers their accusation, something fascinating, He doesn't answer them according to their folly. Right? They want to argue law, but that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't answer law. He doesn't dig into the technicalities. They don't say, wait, it's a violation of the Sabbath to do this, only to have Jesus whip out his Leviticus scroll and say, actually, have you read the fine print? It turns out this is allowed. Like if when you pick the grain, you do it like looking this way and not that way, or you do it on this part of the field and not that part of the field, that's technically permissible. So I got you. That's not the way Jesus responds at all. He doesn't dig into the minutiae of Sabbath regulations to try to justify the actions of his disciples. Instead, his answer rests on his unique authority, on who he is. If he vindicates himself, he doesn't vindicate himself based on the procedures, but rather based on his identity as king. Now, he doesn't deny the importance of the Sabbath. He doesn't say, you guys are being sticklers for something that doesn't matter anymore. Instead, he says the Pharisees are actually ignorant of the true nature of the thing they claim to be defending. He, He provokes them with his questions. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? Do you not understand? If you had but known, then. like All of this questioning is meant to suggest that these learned men who claim to know so much about the Word of God and the will of God are fundamentally ignorant of the heart of God. That's what he's saying. And then he does something interesting. He starts making comparisons. He starts comparing himself. He's not just telling stories from the Old Testament. He's not just illustrating uh, you know, precedents that might justify his action. It's interesting which examples he chooses. So, have you not read about David and his followers who, when they were hungry and on the run, entered into the tabernacle and ate the bread of the presence? Every Sunday, this bread of the presence was put out. It could only be eaten by the priests. And yet, David and his men, when they enter in hunger, this is the bread that they consume. And Jesus says they do it and they're guiltless. They're doing this thing that should be an infraction But they're guiltless. They've done nothing wrong. He's saying basically, Pharisees, if what you're saying is true, wouldn't David have been guilty? Because aren't we doing what he did? But that's an interesting comparison for somebody to make. Because who goes around saying, well, you know, I'm I'm like King David. The Pharisees would naturally reply, look, sure, yeah, but you're no David. He raises the stakes. He says, look, what about the priests? What about the priests? When the priests are serving in the temple, technically, aren't they profaning the Sabbath according to your view? Because they are working inside the temple doing all this stuff that that you say we shouldn't do on the Sabbath. And yet, when they do it, that's not considered a sin. If what you're saying is true, wouldn't the priests be guilty of profaning the Sabbath through their service? It's a setup. This is the Pharisees are, are, are going to say, okay, sure, yeah, but you're no David. They're now thinking, oh, yeah, right, but you're no priest. 
Sure, if the priests do stuff like this, we would turn a blind eye, but you're no priest. You're not qualified to do this. You do not fit the exception that we would be allowed to make. There's a difference between you and them. Which Jesus might reply, yeah, there is. There is a difference. But it's a difference of degrees, not of type. That I'm greater than them, but I'm the same kind of thing. David was a king, but I'm the king of kings. A greater king than David, but still a king. Greater priest than Aaron. The priests who serve and do not profane through their service, do not violate the Sabbath and what they do. I'm a greater priest than any of them. Even more, the temple that they serve in, there's a greater temple than that here before you. That's what he does. He, he, he takes that redemptive historical term revealing who he is, the fulfillment of all these things. David, a, a real historical man who lived, was also a symbol, a type of Christ to come. These priests, the, the Levitical priesthood itself, which was a real historical system acting in time, was also a symbol, a picture of Christ to come. The temple, the physical building, from the, the tent-like tabernacles to the, the, the edifices in Jerusalem, the dwelling places built for the presence of God were real physical places you could go to, you could touch, yet they were symbols, they were signs for signifying Christ to come. And Jesus here cites these examples and basically says, I'm here! I'm here! And if you could make allowances for the shadows, for the types, why is it so hard for you to see and make this allowance, have this understanding of the reality that they pointed to? The Pharisees are always trying to trip Jesus up, always trying to discredit Him. And, and the line of their argument is basically this. They want to find a way that Jesus contradicts what they already know about God. But they want to show where Jesus and Scripture are in conflict. And this seems like a great example because He's allowing His disciples to do something that in their opinion is a violation of Scripture. Right? It's as if they're saying, if you really were the one, wouldn't you follow the law? Or at least our interpretation of the law, that's the unspoken part. If you really are the one, then surely you would follow the law. Jesus is basically replying, if you were interpreting the law rightly, wouldn't you see that I am the one? Wouldn't you recognize that I am the one to whom it all points? So that gives us the, the text here and an understanding of what Jesus is saying, who He is declaring Himself to be. And He's really exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in a way that makes you want to cheer as they get their comeuppance. But don't cheer just yet. Because it may be that we've also been guilty of the same kinds of things. It may be that we've also taken God's gifts and made them into burdens for ourselves and for others. And if you're making God's gifts into a burden, you should repent of that hypocrisy. Before we celebrate the humbling of the Pharisees, we have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same thing? Have we received the gift of grace and passed it on as a kind of burden, as a legacy of hardship for people to carry? Have we received the gift of grace and handed it off as a set of rules and rituals that are more important to us 
than the people that they were created to serve? If we've done this, then we are like them. And like them, we need to examine ourselves and repent. They were hypocrites, but they were moralists. They were hypocritical, but they were moralistic. They wanted people to behave themselves and be good, and they believed that they had found a way by keeping their rules, their code. Hypocritical moralists abound in our culture, in our world. We live in an age of increasing moralism where people who don't believe there's any sort of objective God-given morality live as if there are indeed absolute rights and wrongs that we could be apoplectic with rage when they're violated. We live in a time when all around us we see this hypocrisy, we see this kind of Phariseeism. But the worst kind of hypocritical moralism is the kind that claims to believe in a theology of grace. If a person who believes that I'm saved by behaving myself goes to live a life of moralism, I understand. But when a person who says, I believe we are saved by grace, lives as if we're saved by keeping the rules, that is the worst form of hypocrisy. Because when you make grace into a system of rule-keeping, of works, when you start making it about appearances, about being good or smart or respectable, You hide the gift from people who desperately need to find it. You conceal it behind that wall of self-righteousness. People may know, I need grace, I need forgiveness, but they would never think to look for it there. Because there all I see is, is hypocrites who think they're better than everybody else. Who use the word grace, but don't seem to understand what it means. When you stand in judgment over what God is doing in the world around you and in the people around you, because He's not doing it the way you expected, because it doesn't look the way that you would like it to look, you reveal that like the Pharisees, you may have read the book, but you didn't get the message. You didn't understand the heart of the author of Scripture. And when you find yourself feeling that way and behaving that way, you need to examine yourself and get rid of this hypocrisy. Jesus says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's giving us a little Old Testament prophecy there. He's quoted those words before. Mercy, not sacrifice. Literally, in the Old Testament, said, not sacrifice. Steadfast love, not sacrifice. The idea is not that God wants love instead of sacrifice, that He hates sacrifice. Of course, God set up the sacrificial system. The difference, again, is one of degrees, one of priorities. That in the heart of God, mercy comes before ritual observance. That the heart of the thing comes before the technicalities. The Pharisees have failed to realize this. And, and that failure has distorted all of their interpretation of Scripture. Because they failed to realize what God wants more. What God sees as most important. That mercy, that love, that faithfulness 
is what matters above all else to God. They have made the religion of Scripture a hard yoke. They've elevated ritual observance over human need. They claim that they embody some kind of hard standard, but it's the standard of Scripture. Like, it may be difficult to live up to this, but it is what Scripture teaches. Jesus is saying, basically, you guys have no idea what Scripture teaches. You haven't understood the spirit of the message. And those who take a similar approach to Christianity are guilty of the same faults. You believe that Christianity is basically rules that you need to uphold, a standard that you need to live by, but you miss the overarching spirit of mercy. If you can't find it within yourself to err on the side of grace, then you need to read it again and look for the heart of God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. To us as a church, grace, call is simple, let's live up to that name. Let's not make our very name a hypocritical gesture. Let it never be said of us that God wanted steadfast love and what we gave Him instead was ritual observance. That God called us to mercy and instead we offered Him religion. Let it never be said of us that we cherish the trivial but visible things over the invisible essentials. That we made God's gift of rest feel like a yoke of hard labor to the people around us. Of all things, let us guard against that. It's interesting too, Jesus misses an opportunity in this passage, you might think, to give us the correct rules. If the Pharisees are applying the wrong rules when it comes to Sabbath observance, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus gave the correct rules for proper Sabbath observance? He said, look, I know you say all this stuff is wrong, but actually, no, that's fine. Here are the things that are wrong in the Sabbath, and here are the things that are right on the Sabbath. This would have been a good time, for example, for Jesus to say, hey, guess what? From now on, Sabbath, it's not even on Saturday anymore. It's on Sunday now. Wouldn't that have been a great proof text for Jesus We've given us here, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't address what we might think of as the elephant in the room, right? Rules for proper Sabbath observance. We haven't talked about that because Jesus hasn't talked about that. Now, I will say in adult Sunday school starting next week, we will be talking about that as we look at the Westminster Confessions chapter on the Sabbath. If you're interested in thinking through that stuff biblically, you can join us for that. But for now, Just ask yourself this, why doesn't Jesus lay down the new rules? Clearly something is changing in redemptive history. Like something is changing now that Jesus is here. There's a transformation in the rest that we've been called to. The Sabbath is going to change. The observance of the Sabbath will transform now that Jesus has come. Yet He doesn't address all of the rules about that change. Why? Why? Well, redemption, not rules, come first. The identity of Jesus is what matters here. The identity of Jesus is what Jesus focuses on. Because if you don't realize who He is, then no set of rules can save you. There's no point in talking about rules if you don't even see who's standing before you. And when you see who's standing before you, when you see who He is, He leads you where you need to go. 
He is greater than King David, he says. David was the Davidic king by definition. Right? The Messiah is to come from this great line of, of Savior kings, of shepherd kings. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who stands at the end of that line. I am the king who was promised. He's greater than the temple because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is in His flesh God with us. He is the ultimate tabernacle. Jesus in the incarnation tabernacles with His people. He is literally with us in the flesh. And in the flesh, He is our great high priest who intercedes for us with the Father better than any priest that ever lived. And... He is also greater than the Sabbath. He is greater than the Sabbath. Greater in the sense of above. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The thing that you accuse me of violating, I'm the Lord of that thing. I control it. I created it. I define it. I say what it is. It is impossible for Him to violate this thing that He is sovereign over. He is greater than the Sabbath in the sense that He fulfills it. That He is indeed the rest that has been promised. Now the Sabbath is what we call a creation ordinance. Right? The rest of God comes prior to the fall, prior to sin. And in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, when we're given the command to keep the Sabbath holy, it is specifically grounded in creation in the book of Exodus. It is because of God's rest that we rest. In the book of Deuteronomy, however, when that commandment is given, it's grounded not in creation, but in redemption. In the fact that God delivered His people out of Egyptian bondage into the land of promise so that that rest is identified with that deliverance. Jesus is the Creator and Redeemer of His people. That's who He is. How can the Pharisees pass judgment on the disciples? How can those who do not know Him hope to understand the actions of those who know Him? It's impossible. Jesus is saying, essentially, if you don't know Him, there's no point in, in having a set of rules to follow. Because apart from Him, there are no rules that you can keep and be saved. And yet once you know Him, you will discover how to live in Him. Once you know Him, you will discover how to live in Him. All of the anxiety goes away because it's not about that. It's not about keeping rules. It's about living in Him. How could the Pharisees have judged the disciples? It's a good question. How could they presume? Not just because they didn't understand Jesus and the disciples did, but also because of who the disciples were with. Really, that's the thing that defends the disciples against the accusation when you think about it. It's who they were with. They couldn't be guilty of violating the rest that God had commanded because they were with the Lord of rest. They were with Jesus, doing what Jesus said, being guided by Him. By definition, where they were going was the right place to go. How could they be guilty of not resting when they were with the Lord of rest? 
It's as simple as that. How can you be guilty of not resting if you are with the Lord of rest? You can't. The solution is to be with Him. To be in Him. And to follow Him. What was true for the disciples is true for you. If you're living in Him, if you're following after Him, then you don't need to worry about pleasing men. You don't need to worry about keeping rules. Just follow after Him. You can't ever find rest without Jesus. But with Jesus, you can't ever lose it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.